Dr. Ambedkar said something of the Hindus. He said, the one thing I like about Hindus is they know that something has gone wrong and they are willing to reform it. And that is why uh, he dedicated his first book to three saints, uh, Nandanar, Chokamela, and Ravidas. So if you have three saints impacting the mind of a Bharat Ratna who drafted the Indian constitution, then imagine the impact that these saints would have had in their time period. Welcome to That's So Hindu, the podcast brought to you by the Hindu American Foundation. I'm Matt McDermott. In this episode, Suhag Shukla speaks with Sudarshan Rambhadran, Senior Research Fellow and Administrative Head at India Foundation's Center for Soft Power. In addition to talking about the so-called soft power India holds in the traditions of yoga and Ayurveda, which seem to have spread to what seems like nearly every country on earth in the past two decades, Suhag and Sudarshan have an informative discussion on efforts to lift up the Dalit and tribal communities in India and how the Hindu tradition has been open to reform. Hope you enjoy it. Sudarshan Rambhadran is a senior research fellow at the India Foundation working specifically on soft power. Sudarshan also leads the Tamil Nadu Young Thinkers Forum, an independent association of young individuals committed to improving the social and economic ecosystem of Tamil Nadu. He's an alumni of Vivekananda College and the Asian College of Journalism in Chennai and the U.S. State Department's Legislative Fellows Program in Washington, D.C. Sudarshan previously worked for the New Indian Express News Daily in Chennai and the Department of Information for the Government of Gujarat. He continues to write on social and geopolitical issues for a variety of online and print publications. I was first introduced to Sudarshan by Dr. David Frawley in the context of the first ever conference on soft power, which he helped organize in December of 2018. It remains one of the most impressive conferences I've attended and participated in. It brought together experts and thought leaders from around the world to discuss the value and potential of Indian soft power in the realms of tourism and cuisine, textiles and the arts, Ayurveda, spirituality and yoga, amongst other realms of Indian soft power. Sudarshan and I recently spent some time together in India at a more intimate conclave on Hindu dharma, identity, and its role in global awakening. And I've also recently discovered that Sudarshan and I share a spiritual family in Chinmaya Mission. Today, we'll talk about his ideas and work on Indian soft power, as well as his laudable efforts towards Dalit and other subaltern community empowerment. Welcome, Sudarshan. Vanakam and Namaste Suhagji. Uh, great to e-meet you through this, or should we say pod-meet you through this medium. <laughs> Absolutely. So let's talk about soft power first. A lot of folks listening may not know what that is exactly, let alone know why there are academic treatises uh, written on it, and now an entire department at India Foundation dedicated to it. So can you share with us your definition of soft power and broadly speaking, your work to promote it? Well, uh, soft power by its uh, genesis is a Western term uh, coined by Joseph Nye. And it's been two decades since this term has come about. Uh, I just finished reading a book on India's soft power policy by a Polish scholar. Um, and he concludes the book by saying that even after two decades, we don't have a set definition on the concept. 
it remains evolutionary in nature but for now for our understanding we'll we'll stick to the understanding that uh, the ability of a country to attract people uh, via its culture and values will will stick to this understanding of soft power and india uh, as you know is not a nation state it's a civilizational state uh, we have a 10000 year plus our civilization we have interacted with the world very actively the harappa civilization has interacted with the world very actively so we have we have had a uh, 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 modes in which culture has flown to various parts of the world commerce has also followed culture so we are looking at soft power through this very prism that's why the center for soft power was set up by the india foundation our first attempt was the conference in 2018 in which you were a distinguished speaker we had speakers from 16 countries deliberating on 20 themes uh, we remain nascent uh, but we are taking important strides towards enabling india soft power story uh, through 20 themes so you know soft power is largely seen as an outward facing asset for diplomacy and in in specifically the indian context Do you see a place for it internally and I'll explain this a little bit. Uh it's often been my experience especially amongst members of India's educated or economically elite circles including here in the United States that whether it's the result of a post-colonial hangover or notions of what it means to be modern and rational and scientific there's a noticeable disdain or writing off of things that are quote unquote traditional like religion and spirituality ayurveda uh yoga so yoga maybe to a lesser extent so is there a need for building awareness around soft power amongst indians and what would that look like oh absolutely effective soft power abroad can be is can be discerned only when you have strong indian roots for example i'll i'll take a case study last year we started with something called as ayurveda day you've heard of yoga day uh, 2015 saw the un resolution being passed all countries came together 175 odd countries but ayurveda is something that india has to offer especially during these times where public health is so much in the talk so we realized the need where ayurveda has some strong roots in india for example i come from the state of tamil nadu you will be surprised to know that in early 2000 the governments here actually put out ads as to how indian traditional medicine such as ayurveda and siddha can enable cure uh, diseases and pandemics so we have a, we have a civilizational history to this and therefore we set out with ayurveda day so when we have strong roots uh we saw it resonating with south america we saw it resonating with north america we have also seen it resonating with middle east kingdom of bahrain came forward to say that look ayurveda does have an impact here so i i agree with you fully that we'll have to have our roots strong first for which uh we need to have public and private partnership work cohesively and more actively uh some say the indian government does not do much to enable soft power especially in india i don't agree uh we have a leadership now that is focused on uh, thinking local and acting global 
Reading coverage about India today in mainstream media, meaning the New York Times, Washington Post, BBC, CNN, you know, what have you, there's definitely a sense of gloom and doom about so-called Hindu supremacy that is threatening to take over secular India. Does this predominant narrative pose a challenge to your work on promoting aspects of soft power that are rooted in the Hindu tradition, such as yoga or Ayurveda? I mean, we're talking about a country that for millennia seekers have been attracted to, but now there is this cloak of uh, politicization um, that that has you know certain certain ends of the spectrum crying that the sky is falling. So so does that pose a challenge? Uh, I'll start from where you uh, midway in your question. Seekers, India Indians are seekers of happiness, Ananda. And uh, according to me, Indian uh, ethos and thought is philosophy of or and also. You know, there's this very interesting incident uh, where um, every day in the Sabarmati Ashram, till day, there are prayers from the Gita, the Quran, the uh, Sikhs, the uh, revered texts, so on and so forth. So interestingly, one journalist asked Mahatma Gandhi, uh, you have all these texts in Sabarmati Ashram, which one is closest to you or which one do you like? He said, look, you have a mother or they have the mother pointing at the gathering. And he said, in knowing how much you love your mother, I love my mother. So India has always given this philosophy of or and also. There has never been only in Indian parlance. And in this way, we have sought uh, to attain happiness. Like you said, seekers. We have have eternally remained seekers. You take our texts. You take what contemporary uh, uh, spiritual ambassadors make of that text. You and I have had discussions on that. This philosophy of or and also continues to guide. And even in my uh, work, I I engage with uh, Western think tanks. I engage with Eastern think tanks. And I continue to tell them, look, you look at India through this prism. And you see a very different picture. At HAF, we've done a lot of work through our Take Back Yoga project, which is what I presented on. And that was aimed at striking a balance between the sacred and secular in order to both ensure the integrity of yoga is preserved and that its benefits are widely shared so that people are not scared away because it's quote unquote religious. But the fact remains that it is rooted in a religious tradition. So the project, as you know, developed a narrative which highlights the sacred, the Hindu roots of yoga, and emphasizes the fact that yoga is far more than asana as a counter to the Western commodification of yoga, which actively seeks to delink yoga from the Hindu tradition and with its fixation on the physical. So do you face this tension? I know you have 20 streams um, and not all of them are necessarily uh, related to some of these spiritual soft power assets. But do you face this tension in your work of studying and promoting soft power? So when you look at things like, say, the Kumbh Mela, which uh, UNESCO last year listed as an intangible cultural heritage of humanity, or Ayurveda and yoga, what are the points of tension in you know being respectful of the sacredness of these things, but at the same time trying to find utility for bridge building? 
see i'll give you an example one of both yoga and ayurveda ayurveda uh, we are uh, in the process now of speaking to those who help so 32 countries across 100 locations and 60 organizations enabled ayurveda day last year so we are in the process of following up with each one of them for this year so technically whenever there is dhanvantri jayanti ayurveda day is marked because it's very auspicious for ayurveda practitioners here so we found that there is resonance to this globally you had a bahrain saying okay we'll do it on october 25th last year we had a a, a country like poland uh, i was just telling you about a book in which he, the author presents a case study where india's soft power with poland is not tapped into fully but we had somebody in poland actually saying okay we respect this date and we we will do this at this date so there is that level of commitment for this health science second when we are doing these calls we are also reiterating the importance of classical ayurveda so that is very key to retain so if you want to even contemplate so we are looking to contemplate it as a health science uh you see china has done it very effectively today with traditional chinese medicine in fact by 2022 their goal is to institutionalize traditional chinese medicine in each of their provinces so this is the path that a communist country takes so what lessons we can draw so we are speaking of classical ayurveda how has it evolved with time and how we can transport it as a health science and a way of life this is what we are looking at with ayurveda yoga you so beautifully pointed out your work at hcf you also presented that at our conference we are also looking at yoga through inner work only let's go beyond this asana practice i'm not saying no i am a yoga student i do my share of asanas daily there is absolutely no disrespect to that but there is so much more to yoga than that so we have actually implemented this uh, i'll just share this in brief uh, that this year we are doing it as peace and sustainability through yoga we pick up stories from mahabharat curate it for the benefit of the yoga trainers so we we presume and all yoga trainers are well versed in the krishnamacharya tradition indian tradition so they know the asana aspect so we tell them for one hour you go ahead do your uh, physical part of it after that for at least one hour you discuss the story and discuss it as a reflective experience they are all small curated stories and you could also learn from them you just express what you feel so we tried to put together we started this experiment last year and we are continuing it this year and you know you know the one of the countries that's doing it very very well is pakistan and second is turkey so we have these countries actually not uh, uh, ignoring the stories that we share the practitioners are very true to the cause because we take them in on that and uh, there are people who read these stories they come on calls and then they curate it on their own so we are also committed like hcf and you to explore inner work through yoga it's definitely an untold story for sure well it's an untold story but reflective of the power when you you name two countries that if i based my understanding of foreign relations on the new york times or or whatever other mainstream media you know these are arch enemies where 
there's no people to people connection and there's no other connection beyond the geopolitical um, narratives that ha- that that are real but you know to know that there's this sort of cooperation or conversation that's ongoing is is definitely um, encouraging and that is why suhagdi soft power connects people connects minds if i can use that word and that is why it has to be central to foreign policy i'm not against hard power but that is why it is central to a country's foreign policy orientation so you know in addition to your work i want to pivot a little bit now to um a lot of the work that you're doing on dalit and subaltern empowerment that is working with historically disadvantaged communities so a few weeks ago you shared a message that caught my attention um describing i don't know if it's a new initiative or an ongoing one but the ambedkar ramanujacharya seminar which also has an award as part of it so can you share more about this what inspired it what do the awards attached to the initiative seek to recognize and and how are the awardees selected and i'm sorry i'm asking like a series of questions and i can repeat them for you but and then also if you can share the stories of maybe two awardees to give our audience an idea of you know what the intentions are behind this project fair uh one of the reasons that i'm fully committed to social reformation is inspired by dr ambedkar bharat ratna dr b r ambedkar uh, in all of his writings if you see he's made it amply clear that before anything social reformation must be your core object in view of that uh, in 2017 for his 125th anniversary uh, we thought we'll organize a seminar now seminar today has become a buzzword but uh we felt let's do something different and uh, at that point in time tamil nadu and india were celebrating uh, the 1000th birth anniversary of a 11th century bhakti saint called ramanujacharya uh some of my team members here in tamil nadu via the tamil nadu young thinkers forum they brought to our attention a lot of articles research on how uh, ramanujacharya was a social reformist in his time and also um uh, inspired ambedkar also because ambedkar has written editorials on ramanujacharya so that struck us that let's bring these two icons together and say let us enable social cohesion that way so india was i think celebrating the 70th year of our political independence that year so we called it india at 70 uh, enabling social cohesion so and then we said okay this is the thing so how do we make it uh, a little bit exciting for people to actually come and sit and see so we need to showcase real life stories so swagdi i believe in the power of example india today has given thiruvalluvar to the world he's a power of example and so has it given an ambedkar to the world a power of example so we said we'll pick up real time heroes who are inspired by these people uh they have faced gross injustice through uh, caste based discrimination we cannot uh, not deny it and but at the same time they have not given up and fought not through punitive or violent measures they have fought through compassion through empathy through love through self effort that's how we instituted the ambedkar ramanujacharya award so every year between april and june we 
we do this uh, on two occasions we did it in a urban setting third occasion we actually took this to a rural setting and we wanted to observe the the experience there and uh, people were so uh, uh, muted in admiration of these achievers that we selected so we have a jury uh, that is well versed in the social dynamics of tamil nadu so they pick up these achievers they recommend so we have a set of interviews that we conduct and understand them better uh, and then we select them so we select five achievers uh, they come and speak about how they have uh, ridden past caste discrimination to be where they are and uh, that by itself you know uh, when when people see these stories that's why i say india has to move from incredible india to incredible incredible indians so when they see these indians and they are like so inspired and uh, they say okay i can be like that one day so that's how this we saw resonating with uh, a lot of people uh, and then we we've had it at a, as a continuum i'll take two examples of awardees one is sai krishna now sai krishnan comes from chennai he hails from the cobbler community those who make uh, or rather help in stitching our slippers or shoes or whatever you may wish to call it now his father also was doing it he was also doing it and he continued to do it and he was a school dropout and then one fine day uh, he approached the chennai corporation to uh, start educating those who give exams for tamil nadu public service commission now this out of the box idea and he continued to do continued to be a cobbler as well as take this up simultaneously of course now he's had, he has a trust and he he does this primarily uh, through the nidarsanam public charitable trust and the chennai corporation that is the leadership uh, level at the bureaucracy, the, the bureaucracy here actually affirmed his request and today he trains people to write that examination and clear that examination now this is a powerful story uh, so sai krishnan is one at the same time you have a shweta a shweta comes from uh, a tribe a denotified tribe called the narikurava tribe they unfortunately are not recognized as part of scheduled caste or scheduled tribe their fight is to uh, get into the scheduled tribe category uh now they have a beautiful culture in which several years ago temple festivals were conducted by their community now uh, shweta is the first graduate from that community now i must add a footnote here that uh, you will see these people what do you call as hitting uh, yourself like uh, self self flagellating ha ha so in the streets to attract attention this community does that as a result automatically people think that uh, hey they are primitive so that's another very subtle discrimination on our part so actually this this community provides committed students of education and shweta is a, a a live example of that so these awards highlight the stories of of a new and ascendant generation and you've also written extensively on the need to highlight some of the historical stories of powerful women and men whose lives and message have had a, tr- a transformative impact on indian society not only to empower members of subaltern communities but also to combat entrenched attitudes and prejudices that we see held in indian society or to bring to light the essential 
meanings of our religious tradition of, of the Hindu tradition and what the core teachings tell us about what we owe to fellow mankind, to the planet in terms of, you know, equal vision and compassion. So you've written about people like Rani Jalkaribai, Sant Kabir, Guru Ravidas, Jyoti Rao and Savitri Phule. Has there been academic study of these figures? I mean, it seems like they are such um, ripe topics for for things like gender studies or subaltern studies. Are they covered in history books with any depth? Or and if not, what more can be done to highlight these stories? I think the inspiration came from uh, um, both Guru Prakash and I, another dear friend. We started writing. Uh, with our first profile on Ambedkar for a news daily. April 14th, his birth anniversary in 2016. When we wrote this column, um, there was a lot of organic, although a short piece, there was organic feedback that you must try and bring out from various quarters, that you you must bring out more such stories of people. So uh, then we sat together and decided that every month we'll pick somebody and uh, start writing about them. And that's how this entire series came up. So uh, there was a time that almost for one, one and a half years, we wrote for, on people. And uh, at a point in time, now people ask that where is the next hero? We wish to assure everyone that we'll be coming up with something unique soon on these heroes. So that is on the inspiration. Two, uh, I think, Suhaji, more people need to read about them. Uh, we must accept that there have been glaring aberrations in the past. Dr. Ambedkar said something of the Hindus. He said, the one thing I like about Hindus is they know that something has gone wrong and they are willing to reform it, or at least few are battling to reform it. And that is why uh, he dedicated his first book called The Untouchables to Three Saints, uh, uh, Nandanar, uh, Chokamela and Ravidas. So if you have three saints impacting the mind of a Bharat Ratna who drafted the Indian constitution, then imagine the impact that these saints would have had in their time period. And that's what we are trying to do. And uh, like uh, Swami Chinmayananji said, youth have two responsibilities. You wipe clean the dirty mistakes of the past and you pave way for a greater future. So more and more people have to be open to reading about them, the atrocious, inhuman discrimination they faced, but they remained within the system. For example, Nandanar, his uh, entire devotion was Shiva. That's all, nothing else. Yet he was denied access to the Sanctum Sectorum. But his sheer devotion got him to the Chidambaram temple, and he attained moksha. And there are several stories like this. I'm not saying this is just one. Uh, we start from Hinduism is incomplete without uh, a Vyasa and Valmiki. Where will Hinduism stand today? A Vyasa, born to a fisherwoman, Satyavati, gave us the Mahabharata, gave us the Puranas. A Valmiki gave us uh, a Ramayana, uh, through which we continue the Ramayana impacts Several, we were speaking about Jofpa, it impacts so many countries uh, uh, today. So I think your question of what should we do, uh, we need to uh, make a conscious effort of bringing in these heroes, 
and write about them. If you don't want to write about them, make short videos. Today, social media is, uh, you know, innovatively used. Speak about them in podcasts like this or have seminars uh, like what we have done. Uh, award people, but bring, contemporize them for the benefit of youth. Because as uh, Martin Luther King said, we are not makers of history, but we are made by history. Uh, so these are the heroes who, because of whom our history today is made. So I would earnestly request HAF and all the listeners that please uh, research more about them. Uh, I'm not saying what we have written is full stop. Uh, you could bring out several more details about them and not just of Dalits, of tribals, of these deprived communities. Uh, bring them back into focus and truly show that India is a civilization of philosophy of or and also. In preparing for our conversation, I read the story. Well, first, let me just say that growing up, uh, my nickname in the house was Jhansi Kirani. So when I came across the story of Rani Jalkaribai, uh, I was I was absolutely floored. I had not read it. So I'm first of all, thank you. Um, you know, that might be partially because I was born and raised in the United States. But I mean, just such an inspiring story. Would you mind just, you know, for our audience, giving a taste of the kinds of stories and kinds of figures that have come from traditions uh, or communities rather that have faced uh, really like uh, incredible odds and still rise and, and are so reflective of the human spirit. Not only that, but also the reception they get from the larger society, which is also oftentimes demonized. Um, and so we tend to sometimes, I think, paint everything in just one broad brush without realizing that societies are made of individuals. So maybe you could tell our audience that story of, of Rani Jalkaribai. So uh, I'll take off from your question again. You were known as Jansi Rani, but you know, whenever we speak of the first war of uh, Indian independence in 1857, one of the most important events in Indian history, then the popular names that we mostly associate with it are Mangal Pandey, Rani Lakshmi Bai, Tatya Tope, so on and so forth. But we actually don't know that there were people like Rani Jalkari Bai, Uda Devi Pasi, Pannadhai, Mahavir Devi. They were all people who played a very, very important role in this first war of independence. And that is why you have uh, some scholars pointing out how Dalits actually enabled and fought in the first war of uh, independence in 1857 and therefore are incredible nationalists. For them, the nation comes first. That's why one of Ambedkar's uh, long-cherished uh, uh, bucket list dream was to write a book on the history of the Indian Army. Anyway, coming back to Jalkari Bai, uh, some details we have about her are she was born on 22nd November in 1830. Uh, her, uh, she coincidentally comes from the same community as uh, the current Indian president, uh, Ramnath Kovind. So, vis-a-vis -vis Jalkari Bai, the stories of her have been uh, uh, brought down to generations through village meets, uh, skits, etc. But uh, uh, what she really excelled in was in archery, wrestling, and shooting. 
Now, one very uh, interesting thing about her was that her physical stature uh, bore a striking resemblance to Rani Lakshmi Bai. And this is documented by an account written by B.L. Verma in 1951, uh, in which he has interviewed uh, Delkari Bai's grandson. Now, another common misnomer that people make is, look, she was just a domestic help to Lakshmi Bai. And I'm sorry to say that's not the truth. In fact, Mr. Verma also elucidates the fact that she was a trusted advisor for Rani Lakshmi Bai. And uh, she also inspired her husband, Puran Pori, to fight for Rani uh, Lakshmi Bai. So Bundelkhand, from where she comes, uh, uh, lived at one point in time, holds another important uh, legend where, you know, at this point, uh, there was this uh, period of the doctrine of lapse by the British, where they, where they were looking to take over kingdoms of Jansi and the Gwalior court, but Lakshmi Bai would not budge. But in fact, uh, the account has it that Jalkari Bai disguised herself as Lakshmi Bai because she bore a resemblance to her and she was in the front line as a ploy to let Lakshmi Bai escape the fort. And this is actually recounted in the famous Bollywood movie Manikarnika as well, if you see. So there is authentic evidence that this has happened. And uh, Delkari Bai was also referred to famously as uh, Durga, goddess uh, Durga. So like I said, her legacy continues to survive through people's memory, through folklore, through folk stories and uh, uh, village squares, so on and so forth. But I'll tell you who actually uh, played a very integral role in bringing back her to national conscious credit is with you. Uh, Kanshiram played a very, very important role in bringing back uh, heroes like this into mainstream. So we had, uh, you know, the Bhaujan Samaj Party, which he inspired and founded. They actually performed well in uh, in a uh, election um, in Uttar Pradesh. And one of the reasons that analysts say that they contributed to them performing well was they brought back uh, Jalkari Bai into public uh, memory. So this uh, deep-seated patriarchy and individual feudalism uh, one that one sees in Indian academia has to end and we'll have to take uh, inspiration from uh, Jalkari Bai. And I, I just uh, end on Jalkari Bai's story. So 2001, the government of India under Prime Minister Vajpayee uh, released the stamp actually in honor of uh, Rani Jalkari Bai. Excellent. Um, well, we'll look forward to different media in which uh, you will continue to highlight these stories. And uh, we certainly uh, are looking forward to helping amplify these stories, but also to be inspired by them uh, more importantly. So I have one last question for you. Um, at HAF, we've long admitted that, yes, caste-based discrimination is real and cuts across all religious communities throughout South Asia that some have you misused religion as a cover to discriminate against and mistreat others, that politics has further complicated the situation, and that the most effective means of eradicating social discrimination is to promote and uphold the fundamental teachings of Hindu Dharma, of our shared divinity, and the need for equal vision. Every major modern Hindu spiritual leader has the same message, including our guru, Swami Chinmayananda. Yet, 
Some Dalit activists here in the U.S. are insisting upon a narrative that Hinduism is not a safe space for them as they're not recognized as equals before God. Now, I don't want to take away from their experience where they may have been personally discriminated, but when we're talking about a theological or philosophical basis, what would the communities that you're working with say to them about their place in Hindu dharma? You know, Swati, very interestingly, um, Ambedkar uh, said of Swami Vivekananda, he is one of the most greatest Indians ever that the country has produced. In fact, he didn't even name Mahatma Gandhi with due respect. And uh, in his works, if you read, uh, he has asked the Dalits uh, to establish a religion based on the principles of the Upanishads. Uh, now, here is an individual who has read us, uh, read not us, uh, the, the vast uh, knowledge base that uh, Hindu Dharma has to offer. Yes, like you said, we cannot deny the discrimination that he faced, but look at his understanding, dedicating a book to three saints, uh, asking um, Dalits to establish a religion based on Upanishads, getting inspired by Swami Vivekananda, and of course, telling that Hindus do realize what is lacking in them, and this is a major issue, and there are some battling to correct it. So I would rely on Ambedkar's words to, to these so-called activists that you point out, that these are some of the key pillars with which I study Ambedkar. And this would be my response, that yes, Hindu Dharma has its... Uh, should be put it as, has caste-based discrimination. There's no denying that. Uh, but 21st century is looking at Dalits as thought banks, not just vote banks. Uh, this is something which Dr. Sanjay Paswan has made very popular. So we are looking at enabling Dalits through representation, uh, key voices in think tanks, Yes, there is a long way to go, uh, but I don't see people from the community undermining Hindu dharma or culture. If they are there, they are there. But yes, if they are suffocated by it, they, they have the freedom of choice to opt for whatever they feel will enable their growth. That's it for this episode of That's So Hindu. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It's how you can help this show get discovered by more listeners. You can help ensure that more of these get made by making a donation to HAF at www.hinduamerican.org slash donate.